0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts of the New Books Network, and today we are here with Dr. Monica Popescu, William Dawson Scholar of African Literature and Associate Professor at McGill University. Hello, Dr. Popescu, and welcome to our channel.
1: Thank you so much, Victoria. I'm I'm so honored to 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 be here. Um...
0: We are honored to have you and you know I really want to thank you um for agreeing to talk to us about your new book at Penpoint African Literature's Postcolonial Studies and the Cold War published in 2020 by Duke University Press. Um and you know I'll just start um to um you know our interview uh, by asking you how you you came to um to this project in, you know in an attempt to to get to know you better and your work as well. So, you know, I was just curious how you got interested in the Cold War studies and their connection with African literature. I know you have published a few books before. So, you know, I guess there's some sort of backstory that, you know, goes maybe to graduate school or to the other books. So, you know, I was just curious to to learn more about that.
1: That's, that's a great uh, starting question and very generous. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, so, yeah, um, I could speak of two um, intertwined genealogies for, for this project. And uh, one of them has to do with growing up in Eastern Europe um, under a communist dictatorship, so under Ceausescu's um, dictatorship, uh, which uh, we... We share we do, yeah. uh, this background. <laughs> yeah. um, so growing up during the, the, the Cold War and uh, after the end of the Cold War, I was very much interested in how to study forms of imperialism that did not necessarily um, were not necessarily studied at at the time. So how to study forms of Soviet imperialism in in Eastern Europe. So that's how I developed the the connection with with post-colonial studies and and African studies. Because I saw in the efforts of intellectuals from uh, what was uh, called during the Cold War, the Third World. To to think about the forms of of domination that um, either traditional um, empires or new forms of imperialism, such as uh, American imperialism, how they could translate into instruments for thinking about the situation in in Eastern Europe. So that's how the the intersection between Cold War studies and um, or at least the Cold War situation and and um, post-colonial studies um, came in my life. And as you have um, hinted, I've I've published before on this topic, um, actually my earliest um, book on the politics of violence um, in post-communist films deals exactly with interrogating the instruments, the intellectual instruments offered by post-colonial studies to think about what was happening in in Romania and in other Eastern European countries. And then um, after graduate school, I, I wrote the book um, South African Literature Beyond the Cold War, where I was preoccupied with the role Eastern Europe and, and Russia in particular held um in the um, South African cultural imaginary, whether they were being seen as sources of um of revolution or whether they were seen as as dangerous examples um that should not be followed by by South Africa. Um so that that's that's how I um, uh, I got um, interested um, in this nexus of um, uh, of, of cultures, and um, and with this book I went back in time and also at a larger continental scale to ask actually how the Cold War impacted um, cultural creation. On the African um, continent. Mm-hmm. So, this is one genealogy, and the other genealogy has to do with um, archives and archival finds. And um, I was really fascinated with how the United States and the Soviet Union, as the two superpowers, set up cultural organizations that promoted ideologically sympathetic agendas. Mm -hmm. And in this book, I focused a lot on the Congress um, uh, for Cultural Freedom and the which was um, a CIA outfit. Um, it was supported um, secretly by by the CIA. And in the nineteen sixties, this the secret came to them to the foreground, and it was quite devastating for for a lot of people who were um, involved with organizations under the umbrella of the um, Congress for Cultural Freedom. And on the other hand, I'm interested in the Afro-Asian Writers Association, which was um, set up as a kind of follow-up to the Bandung Conference, and um, and therefore it was in some ways seen as as non-aligned and um, trying to to navigate the Cold War. Um, turbulent waters, but which fell under the influence of the of the Soviet Union, which provided a lot of um, of, um, of support. Um, and um, I, I was really interested in how we can kind of like reconstitute the the archives um, that that emerge around these institutions, especially that the, the Afro Asian Writers Association archives were dispersed because of the situation at the time in Lebanon, where it was headquartered for for a time, and in Egypt and in Tunisia. Um, so a lot of materials were were lost. And I, I tried to assemble a lot of materials myself. And on the other hand, um, it's startling to see that all the documents pertaining to the Congress for Culture of Freedom are so well archived at the University of Chicago and the archives are staggering in, in, in magnitude. So there, there's also something that has to do with, um, the, the traces, the cultural traces of this conflict and how we can find them. Um, and, and I, I give an example in the introduction of um, finding a document as I was trying to to find information about the 1958 Afro-Asian Writers Conference in Tashkent, in mm-hmm. Uzbekistan. Yeah. And searching online, I found a NATO report on this conference. And my question was, uh, how is it possible, you know, that a military organization is interested in? Uh, cultural event that is uh, for and about African and and Asian writers but obviously culture had an important political and strategic role it was seen um, in this way by the by the superpowers and their respective allies and, and that that's something that um, I became very interested in in exploring and following um, through these two, main um, cultural organizations that I, uh, that I uh, named, the uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom and the Afro-Asian Writers Association, but also with writers who tried to forge an independent uh, way um, without any tutelary kind of institution. Um, so, yeah, that, that's pretty much the, the story of, uh, of how the book was, um, was formed, was conceived. That's a very fascinating
0: story. And, you know, it, it does bring us into the, the conversation about the book, but it also shows, you know, how much is there left to, to be discovered and talked about and, you know, maybe looking forward to a next book, you know, from, uh, from, from the same genealogy, I hope. But, yeah. you know, I'll, I'll ask you about that at the end of the interview.
1: If I can just the, yeah. say something very quickly, you know the, the, the fact that the, the archives are so dispersed and also that they exist in so many languages that also points to a need to to work together um, in um, you know in, in groups of, of researchers, um, for joint projects because one person cannot possibly c- cover. Um, sure. all the variety of of these documents, and i think that that's that's a really interesting and uh, uh, challenge that that we have when we look at these documents
0: absolutely and i was i mean you you addressed this in in the in the book as well right the um the the bounty of of and you know the the multi format and you know the multi language type of approach that this type of exploration requires and i think it's um the academy specifically in north america has been veering towards more you know uh, interdisciplinary uh, or you know collaborative type of of projects and i really hope it will happen in this this um type of nexus as
1: well yeah yeah and yeah, um,
0: yeah oh, sorry uh, yeah. no no i'm <laughs> Um, Okay, then, you know, I mean, with that hope, you know, and I really hope it happens. And, you know, in my own field as well. But in general, I hope that we can we can come together and and collaborate. Um, And with that in mind, um, you know, I'll I'll just jump into two questions about the introduction. And, you know, I'll preface that by saying that the book comprises of the introduction, of course, and conclusions and two parts, and they are just perfectly balanced between, you know, two chapters each. So in the first few pages in the introduction called uh, Genres of Cold War Theory, Postcolonial Studies and African Literary Criticism, you mentioned the title at penpoint and hold that the book aims to bring decolonization and Cold War narratives together. And that's part of my curiosity. And, you know, I really wanted to know more about these two aspects, um, specifically the choice of title, because I thought it's really, really interesting and really cool. And the intellectual drive, um, specifically uh, since postcolonial and Cold War studies do not usually sit together. And, you know, that's one of the the, the main um, things to to address. So, and also my curiosity was fueled by the book's amazing work at, and I'll quote here because I just could not paraphrase, um, and, you know, the on page two, right, the, the emergence of African literary studies by placing this discipline in the context of the global Cold War in order to reveal the watermark left by the Iron Curtain, uh, you know, in fiction, essays, and memoirs penned by intellectuals from former colonies. And I ended, ended the quote there. So, you know, with, with this kind of background, you know, I was just wondering whether you could tell us more about,
1: you know, the title and bringing the two, two fields together. That's uh, yeah. That that's a great question. Um. So the the title I am indebted to Ngugi wa Thiongo, uh, the the very important Kenyan mm-hmm. uh, and now living in uh, American writer and and intellectual. Um. And um, he has a collection of essays um, called um, "Pen Points and Gun Points," mm-hmm. and I was very much inspired by. Um, this idea of um, writing at a penpoint, mm-hmm. and what it means to um, kind of weaponize the the, the pen uh, in order to um, to obtain aesthetic independence, um, to to decolonize the mind again, to to borrow from from his very important um, work. So, um, I was very much interested in the role of the the writer in the process of decolonization, and also struck by the proximity between pens and guns um, in, in Gugi's formulation, right? Pen points and gun points. Mm-hmm. So it is a figure of speech that we no longer use. Um, I think um, today it's more. It's more. Um, um customary to to think of pens writing against guns right mm-hmm. um, this kind of opposition um so uh, that uh, brought me to mm, to think about how we can historicize the development of certain concepts um in literary studies of of african literature so to think Not in in the terms in which we have received um, African literature. In schools, in anthologies, and the the way in which texts are, are being um, introduced in literary um, histories, but actually to to go back to see what were the the debates at the um, uh, at the time, um, and so so this is one of the um, kind of abiding concerns in uh, um, in in my book. Um, I was interested in what were the debates. Um, in the, from the 1950s to the, to the 1980s. And I was struck also, as I was writing um, the, the book, I was struck by something that um, Jeffrey Byrne wrote um, from, from a historical perspective about um, uh, forms of state, statehood in um, Africa at the time of decolonization. And he said that it was not a foregone conclusion what forms of statehood the new countries would take, whether they would be liberal democracies in the, the shape of um, or inspired by the, the Western world, whether they would be socialist um, countries, whether they would be regional federations, right? So so at the time of decolonization um, and because of the options um, offered by the, the Cold War, mm-hmm. Um, th- there are several possibilities. And in the same way, we cannot assume that, I thought, that we cannot assume that the literary forms that emerged on the African continent were predetermined. That, of course, we know which were the influences that colonialism tried to, to shape literary forms. Uh, For instance, if we think about the importation of the novel and certain forms of poetry, that also the new superpowers try to influence cultural production. We can think of how the CIA promoted um, abstract expressionism as as an artistic mode across the the globe to express freedom, right, Uh, creative freedom. Um, and of course, all, all the irony and the fact that they were sponsoring that um, that cultural form, um, or um, how cultural institutions supported by the the CIA, such as the Congress for Cultural Freedom, promoted uh, modernism, and also, of course, on the other um, side of the uh, the Cold uh, uh, War equation of the of the Iron Curtain. The Soviet Union promoted socialist realism and committed art. So so these are kind of competing forces um, at the the time. And one of the goals of the book is to retrieve the conversations, the, the burning topics and the positions that writers were taking at the time and how African writers navigated the treacherous landscape at the time in order to forge decolonized literary forms. So um, in the book, I focus on conversations about the function of the writer in society, Mm -hmm. debates um, on modernism and realism, uh, the aesthetic transformations in the career of of a writer, um, uh, things things like this. So that's how I was trying to, uh, to bring the two uh, fields of knowledge, postcolonial studies, and Cold War studies um, together.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's actually very nicely done in the book. I mean, you do it very, very, very nicely there, and you know, I, I do have questions about it as we we go through through the chapters in order. Um, you know, and I I found at least uh, I mean I don't know if if uh, you know this is a, a largely held opinion, but I found a lot of. Um, uh, well, key terms, right, and key moments um, that um, the book revolves around, and you know, I was wondering whether we could could talk a little bit about about these, um, you know, when we're bringing you know development, independent, and collective, and intersectional postcolonial studies and Cold War scholarship together, um, you know, for for our audience, whether we could uh, mention these, and I was asking because the book proposes a redefinition of some terms. And I yeah. thought that's a very, very important, um, you know, um, a, a contribution to the scholarship that exists right now on this topic.
1: Right. Th- thanks. Well, um, yeah. So if we think about um, how the the two fields have developed separately in 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 parallel, and it's striking because they cover the same period, um, and they they should have been in conversation, I think, um, uh, earlier. So yep. the, the Cold War studies developed as an as an American um, scholarly discipline, and it was uh, as a result focused um, single-mindedly on the conflict between the United States and the the Soviet Union, and countries from the the Third World were being treated as disposable pieces on a on a chess board. Right, but uh, of course, that the Cold War, the the very Term is a misnomer because it was called or, or only for the first and the second world at the at the time, yeah. and it was the the third world countries that um, who were in the throes of um, decolonization at the same time, um, who actually experienced hot conflicts, right. And uh, some some scholars have um, have termed those proxy um, conflicts, but I think it's it's really important to um, to, to take a large view of the conflict in, in global terms, and to understand how the countries from the African continent, um, in in my case, contributed um, to uh, to the discourse about the conflict. Uh, and to the topics that were under debate, and um, and especially from a literary perspective, how how the writers um, understood their position and their role as writers at um, at that time. And since you you asked about kind of like key moments in the in the development of the of the field, mm-hmm. um, the historian. Um, Odd Arne Westad's uh, book uh, The Global Cold War which came out in 2005 was a was a landmark study
0: mm-hmm. that
1: changed the, the discussions from this focus on uh, US uh, USA and USSR to to look at the uh, at the entire world and how the cold war played out. So this is the this is the the Cold War side of the the equation, Uh, from the other side of the equation, post-colonial studies, well, the the discipline was institutionalized, if we can say that, or it it flourished and and then became, uh, um, the writings became anthologized in the 1980s and 1990s, right? Especially the 1990s, right at the end of the Cold War, we have this flourishing of anthologies and handbooks, um, and this was happening concomitantly with with the the growth of post-structuralist approach in in the academia. And the result is that, uh, is a view of decolonization that was institutionalized that is mostly cultural, and which was also dismissive of earlier decolonization writings as being too Marxist or too economist or too political, right? So that... Um, in the new millennium, we started to have calls that we have to reintroduce the political in post-colonial um, studies. And I think it's it's essential to see how nuanced is the perspective of theorists and politicians like um, Frantz Fanon and Aimé Césaire and Amilcar Cabral and Gugi Wationgo. And to think of writings such as Ngugi's, um, um, together with um, uh, Tabanlo Leong and Henry O'War, um, the, the little uh, piece called the Abol- On the Abolition of the English Department, mm-hmm. we can trace a different genealogy of postcolonial studies if we think in, in those terms. What Apollo Amoko has called the, the Nairobi Revolution—that is, this transformation of uh, of education through uh, decolonized perspective—is definitely something that we need to take into account in a genealogy of, of postcolonial studies, um, and and is not what was being written in. Uh, books that were treating the history of the of the discipline in the 1990s. So, uh, but at the same time, um, and here's where I see um, a problem that that needs to be addressed. Postcolonial studies have been, whether you know, of the of the earlier um, the earlier um, form of postcolonial studies or the the 1980s 1990s um, form. They were focused on Western forms of domination. Right. and of course, there's a very good reason for for that, given the um the history of Western colonialism, but they were not being mindful of other forms of domination, such as Soviet domination, mm-hmm. which was happening in parallel so so this is something that I feel that has to happen, um, and for which I argue in, in this book, that we need a multidirectional um, understanding of, and, uh, of overlaying forms of imp- imperialism during the Cold War in order to fully grasp the, the situation. So, so that's, that's pretty much where the argument in my, in my book um, goes. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And,
0: um, you know, I mean, I, uh, I saw it in the book and, you know, I also agree with it. So, you know, it, it's, um, it was very, um, very interesting to, to kind of relate in that sense with, with the book. And, you know, I think more about, you know, forms of imperialism and domination, um, you know, also in other parts of, of
1: the world as, you know, Latin America or, you know, um, Asia as well. Right, right, right. Especially and and the, the, the kind of redefinition of, um, for instance, I'm thinking of, of your uh, research interest that the redefinition of, of uh, where China was as a, um, a as a, a country that saw itself uh, as fighting against imperialism yeah. with China, which is now seen as a new um, form form of imperialism in in Africa on the African continent, right.
0: Absolutely, yes, absolutely, and you know during during the Maoist period, right, you you have this uh, kind of impetus, right, of of leading, you know, countries and you know, right. kind of sharing knowledge and information, and now we have a different type of of drive uh, behind the sharing of information.
1: Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
0: So, exactly. So you know, I think. Um, the methodology that that the book your book proposes it's actually very very important in opening conversations that go beyond African literature. Of course, I mean this this is the the scope here, but you know, kind of going uh, going uh, broad in a broader sense, um, I think uh, opens up conversations about uh, these types of things that happen in the past, but also right now and how they they feed onto each other, right. Um, Thank you. And um, I think the, the, uh, right, so part one uh, here uh, um, entitled African Literary History and the Cold War, um, as as we mentioned before, contains chapter one and two and takes a closer look at the most important literary debates alongside their venues happening as African literature was uh, gaining more ground as a scholarly field um and i think this this is where the transition might have happened to this question like oh okay so we're talking about you know the historicizing of of these debates as um, you know we 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 have to and in the first chapter entitled pens and guns literary autonomy artistic commitment and secret sponsorship we follow the role of the individual writer as a pivotal figure in directing cultural production and in making cultural and historical decisions in digesting how the cold war atmosphere um, you know, unraveled itself and while riding towards canon formation. And I think canon formation here, it's, it's, um, it's, an, it's a very important term. And my question was related to um, the ways in which the Cold War, um, you know, was present, like, how did it how did it feel to, to the individual writer? And, you know, what prominent literary venues uh, were under scrutiny at that moment, and the role of the committed art in the third world, um, as you mentioned, also, uh, before, when we were talking in the the introduction. Right,
1: right, yeah. So in the introduction, indeed, I, I mentioned the the two main institutions that um that I'm really interested in, uh, namely the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which was an um an organization under the um, the sponsorship of the the secret sponsorship of yeah. the the CIA, okay. um, and uh, which also operated in Paris, a center of for African um, studies, which right. is headed by South African um, intellectual in exile, Leskian Patlelem. Mm-hmm. and uh, which had a really um tremendous influence in supporting s- some of the most important journals of um that promoted african literature in the 1950s and and 1960s and i'm thinking of um, the journal uh black orpheus uh, which right. was Based in in Nigeria and also Transition, uh, which was uh, based in in Uganda, mm-hmm. um, but also um, other um, other uh, projects across the the, the continent or um, the Transcription Center, which was based in in London, which also collected lots of writers in in exile um, mm-hmm. there uh, as um, hired them as. Uh, uh, people on, on on the staff uh, who were interviewing or presenting news cultural news um so mm, those were some of the um, some of the venues along with the um, the conferences that were sponsored by the the Congress for Cultural Freedom and actually the first um uh the the, the first conference of African writers um, which took place um in um, uh, in the um, uh, Uganda um, at uh, Makerere College is is a landmark for the kind of discussions that were were taking place at the time, and um, a- and some of the discussions that um, that were being held at the time had to do with um, what is the position of the of the writer. Uh, was the writer supposed to be an um, autonomous individual who was um, focused on writing about, um, mostly focused on the on the self, the the role of the interiority, and here we can see the the role of um, of modernist conception of of, uh, of literature, and. Um, also a confluence with the dissident model of the, the writer, which is promoted by many western institutions, including um, Penn International, right? The idea that yeah. we have to support it. and this is very important, right? It, it was it was crucial and continues to be um to, to be crucial um today to support writers who are threatened by by the the, the state. Yeah. Um, so the an idea of the the function of the, the writer as um Naysayer to to the government came to the foreword as a as a result, mm-hmm. and this was an idea that was supported mostly by by Western institutions and definitely by the Congress for Cultural um, Freedom. And on the other hand, we have um, a, m- a model supported by the the Soviet Union, but it, it's also based on a Western tradition of uh, literature engagée, right? And we can uh, think of of Sartre and uh, a French tradition of, of thinking of the, the, the committed um, writer. So uh, they promoted this idea of a uh, model of commitment. The writer was not just um, uh, a private person, right. but writers were citizens, workers, like um, uh, any other... Participants um, in in society, and they had a duty to contribute to the transformation of uh, of society. That art was supposed to conscientize uh, the, uh, the the population, and we see this this idea um, um, taking um, uh, uh, putting uh, out roots and and developing in the. Um, uh, Afro-Asian Writers Association, which, as I mentioned um, earlier, started as something that was supposed to be independent, but the Soviet Union uh, managed to uh, organize some of the most important of its conferences in, in the Soviet Union or sponsored um, the um, the meetings of um, of the writers and um uh, of the um, directing bodies of of the uh, of the organization, so that that's how this discussion about the the function of the writer, which uh, m- might have been separate from from politics, otherwise it was actually very much um, influenced by by the superpowers, mm-hmm. and that's, that's one of the things that I'm I'm looking at, um, and that chapter starts from. A conference that was held in in Sweden, where uh, in the early nineteen sixties, where writers were debating whether they should stick to their um, write, uh, writing implements or um, they should literally or symbolically take up um, arms. And uh, South African writer Alex LaGuma was was uh, one of the proponents of we have to to take up arms and and to think about the role of the the committed um, uh, writer and because of course he was coming from from south africa where uh, the the situation was was dire and he had barely managed to to escape into um into exile of course you know the, this was the the position that he was espousing but also because he was um, a member of the ANC and of the um, South African Communist um, uh, Party. And that also meant that this orientation towards a, a Soviet model of, of thinking about, um, uh, about the function of the, of the writer.
0: Absolutely, yeah. It's it's fascinating to to see how um how these positions right were were adopted and how the Cold War and the dichotomy there right played into to the assumption of these positions and how you know um, books and you know um, articles were written uh, with with this in mind. Um, and you know the, the the creation of aesthetic world systems, as you you show in the second in the second chapter, uh, where you debate the um, well you you demonstrate right how the the idea of modernism and realism transformed, right? So um, in in the title right, aesthetic world systems, mythologies of modernism and realism, right? We see right from 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 it that this dichotomy uh, was present, but uh, it it. You, you bypass it and um, you zoom in on the mythologies of realism and modernism as they were sedimented into literary consciousness owing to the aesthetic world system set by the superpowers during the Cold War. Um, and I cited from page 26. So, you know, I was wondering how these mythologies explored by writers such as Michele Mugo, Luis Nkosi, and the others, um, you know how do they play out, and what are some of the theories of world literature that got formulated on the African continent in the sixties and seventies as a result, right, of, of all of these tribulations?
1: Right. Um, uh, so um, the the chapter starts from from the realization that that modernism and realism were not free choices on a platter, uh, so mm-hmm. to speak. Mm-hmm um you know on a on a display in a, a display window where modes of writing are uh, are being uh, free to free to choose right. but um that during the cold War they came to be associated with the the USA and their um, allies and the usSR and their um, allies uh, respectively mm-hmm. so what I am trying tracing in this chapter is a is a forced dichotomy um, you are with us and you to support experimental writing exploring new forms or you are um against us and you focus on the political message and you see uh realism as some kind of transparent um mode of, of writing that can convey that that political message and of course this is a very reductive understanding of uh, of modernism and, and realism and that's why I I talk about the mythologies of of, of realism and modernism the perceptions the the narratives that were um, that were formed um, about them and um, what I noticed looking at um, how these writers, many of whom were also uh, writing theoretical essays at the um, at the time, for instance, Luis Nkosi and um, Gugli Bationgo and um, and Mesquian um, Patlele, right? They, they they're not just um, they don't just write fiction. But also um, um, essays. Um, and, and in their essays, we start to see the, the, the formulations, the developing formulations about um, modernism and, um, and realism. And what I was struck um, by is that there's a kind of um, entrenchment of ideological and aesthetic positions from the late 1960s onwards, and I think that it has to do with the revelations about how the CIA um, had tried to influence cultural production across the the globe, Uh, not just in in Africa. The the Congress for Cultural Freedom had um, outfits in um, so many countries around um, the globe um so the 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 realization that the superpowers and with the soviet union and it was even more overt and and easy to see that they were sponsoring certain um certain journals certain um conferences and and associations um so it was the realization that the superpowers had a hand in shepherding certain forms of art that in some ways also led to a uh, further kind of like tightening of of ideological or uh, dichotomization of um, ideological positions um, and I was I was supposed you know to uh, I was surprised to to read um, a, a paper written by Michel mugo in the 1980s um, in which she talked about two types of um, uh, of cultures. Um, so I, I'm, I'm quoting, um, she said, Util- utilitarian pro-people culture can be liberating and fulfilling. Show, parade, anti-people culture, on the other hand, can be decadent, suffocating, oppressive, and enslaving towards the oppressed, right? So so that's a kind of very simplifying way of thinking about what um, how modernism and realism align with uh, uh, for the people or against the people. And it's even more striking because in my conversations with scholars who work, for instance, in on South Asia, um, I understand that their modernism was very important in the in the process of decolonization. So a completely different role um, and, and position of the realist modernism debate. Um, but at the same time, I also want to emphasize that the, the venues that I talk about, the cultural venues that I talk about, um, are not, uh, are are not absolutely, um, Manichaean in, in in their in their approach. For instance, Luis Nkosi published both in, in Lotus, the, the journal of the Afro Asian Writers Association, and in Transition, which was um, funded by the Congress for, for cultural freedom. Um, Eskien Patlele um, had appeared in in some um, issues of the the journal Lotus, but he was the head of the um, um, Africa Center of the Congress for Cultural Freedom, right? So, uh, of course, there are all these um, these crossovers, um, and, and which even more makes us think that we have to to we are dealing with mythologies of modernism and realism, with narratives about these modes of of writing rather than um concrete um implementation of of them right right and then you know the they get
0: um you know reproduced and reinterpreted right in a, in a certain in a certain way from their position of mythologies right of of real
1: right right and and they become um entrenched also uh through canonization right through awards through anthologies um literary prizes and, and and things like like that what is being taught in the um in the classroom and that's why of course because of the um, the the curriculum in the in the classroom that's why modernism still has such a hold on what we consider to to be good literature um, today right
0: absolutely and um you know the the problem of of the anthology um and its power has also been um you know has sparked debates in theories of world literature right because you know the 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 dissemination of these type of anthologies has been quite has played a role right in the definition of world literature so um i thought that was a very interesting um you know, topic to bring up and, and talk about uh, theories of world literature formulated on the African continent, you know, having in mind all of these mythologies and dichotomies and everything that, that was happening at the time um, that is present in, in, in chapter uh, two, but also in the book uh, as as is um but you know i can't jump to to chapter 3 and to part 2 without asking you uh to tell us more about the aesthetic shifts in Gugiwa wat works specifically as they are indicative of transformations in the aesthetic world systems um that you know are still relevant today
1: yeah that that's that's a uh that's a great uh, um question and uh i you know i i, I admire his career so much because yeah. It's also indicative of how writers were able to navigate the, the Cold War and to finally forge independent, decolonized forms of, of writing. Um, and, you know, to, to borrow his um, um, Decolonizing the Mind um, um, title. Um how they were able to shake off um, models from from abroad. Because when when he started writing, because of the influence uh, of uh, of, of the models that he was being taught in college and in graduate school, um, we can trace a modernist influence in his early career. If we look, for instance, at uh, an amazing novel, A Grain of Wheat, um, scholars have pointed out that there are parallels with Joseph Conrad's under Western eyes. And yet, you know, the, the, the parallels are, are there definitely. But what is even more striking and interesting is that Guy felt that he needed to revise um, the original um, form of the, of the novel, which was published in 1967. Mm-hmm. And in 1986, the novel was republished with some revisions, and those revisions are trying to dampen the influence mm-hmm. of of modernism and to kind of clarify the political message of the uh, of the book. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I thought that that, that that's quite um, striking. Mm-hmm. And the the next novel that he published after uh, A Grain of Wheat, um, Petals of Blood. He states, uh, he stated in an in an interview that it was influenced by Sholokov's um, and Quiet Flows the Dawn, mm-hmm. um, which which is considered to be one of the masterpieces of, uh, of uh, Soviet uh, socialist realism. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not so convinced that necessarily that, that that's you know the case in the in the novel, but I think that the kind of alliance, aesthetic alliance that that he establishes there is really important. That he wants a novel that is not beholden to Western forms of, of writing. Um, and instead of aligning um, it with, with Soviet um, socialist realism, um, and from there, then, you know, there's another transformation in the next novel, which is Devil on the Cross, and which was published in 1981. In Gikuyu, it's his first novel that he published in Gikuyu and was then translated into English and other languages. And in that novel, we start to see the influence of oral narratives and African forms of, of, uh, of storytelling combined with um, social or socialist realism. And and finally, we get to um, what I consider his his best novel, uh, *Wizard of the Crow*, um, published in the in the new millennium, um, where he draws heavily on forms of uh, of the fantastic and oral narratives that um, that are indigenous, that um, are Kenyan African, um, and he actually refuses the label of magical realism because I think that you know. It, it's it's seen as uh, as if you know it's a form borrowed from the Latin American uh, boom, um, and he and he's adamant about uh, the indigeneity of these um, uh, of these literary forms. Um, so I think that yeah, his his literary career is fantastic in in kind of seeing how um, he was able to shake off the. Um, the influences from from abroad in order to find the, the best form of the of the novel to serve his um, his cultural purposes. And, and speaking of that, um, I, I also want to briefly refer to uh, an author who, who um, comes up in in my third chapter, um, namely Mongane Woli Serote and his um, his novel. And to Every Birth Is Blood, which was published in 1981, but which was uh, he was writing it um, in the late um, 1970s. And the novel has quite a striking shape because it starts in a modernist vein with a kind of um, uh, inter- interiority, focus on interiority, the tormented character who is under apartheid and doesn't know what to do. And it's clear that that kind of um, uh, internal tor- turmoil for uh, for is, is not something that is um, pro- productive of uh, any kind of social social transformation. And the second part of the the novel shifts to a realist perspective and also a collectivity of voices. So this this kind of polyphony. Um, It also speaks to the the role of uh, people joining forces in the the um, anti-apartheid struggle. And from what I've read, this transformation happened, um, this shift in the middle of the novel uh, um, happened because of um, the influence of the 1976 Soweto uprising and realizing that Mm -hmm. there is a possibility to to fight apartheid um, effectively if people join forces together. Um, so yeah, uh, that that's um, that that's one of the the things that I find quite striking how modernism can be discarded as a mode of writing that that is not um, sufficient, that is not representative of the struggle against um, forms of, of domination and. Um, and the form of realism, socialist realism is instead um, embraced. Yeah, I was very struck as well as I was
0: reading through through chapter three and you know, by the the examples as well. and you know, I think it also speaks to the urgency of 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 matters happening on the ground and happening right internationally as well that the authors, Uh, feel right in their in their very bones and make these decisions of course aesthetically and of course culturally but there's also this type of immediate urgency that we can feel through the writing and through um, through the novels they write that gets communicated in these shifts and in these choices that that they make that for me were were quite quite striking and important to um, to the moment that they were going through but also for today right that we see um transformations happening as well
1: uh
0: specifically in in the streets um And um, yeah, and that brings us, you know, seamlessly to chapter three. (laughs) Uh, uh, Well, part two, right? Reading through a Cold War lens uh, that expands existing approaches to African literary history in the two chapters that it encompasses, and the first is chapter three, creating futures, producing theory, strike, revolution, and the morning after. That takes its time in discussing literary approaches to imagined futures and the genealogy of the ideas of revolution and you know uh, my my question here um refers more to the futures and how do how did they look like and how did the idea of revolution change over time and through the works of canonical uh, canonical writers
1: yeah um thanks for for that question um so when i was writing that chapter i was um very much interested in in how African writers help to to theorize ideas of um, of revolution and, and social transformation, mm-hmm. um, and I was um, uh, writing against the the problematic assumption that revolution has a stable meaning mm-hmm. and that there are. Certain models, whether you know it's the French Revolution or the Haitian Revolution or um, uh, the temporally the the most proximate one, the, the the Russian Revolution that influences people in you know on the African continent or uh, or elsewhere in the in the world, yeah. and um, we have to just look at the the works of uh, Franz Fanon and Amilcar Cabral uh, who theorized the revolution in Africa by uh, looking at what were the, the local forces engaged in the process of um, social transformation or uh, opposed to, to social transformation and decolonization. How, for instance, they saw um, the peasantry as, as being very important for, for Fanon, um, the working class um, has a lot to to lose. <laughs> um, the, so contrary to what Marx uh, thought yeah. that they have only to lose the the chains. Um, yeah. And and Fanon sees the peasantry as the um, the, the class that can push forward yeah. the um, anti colonial um, revolution and and transformation. So I was interested in how um, the the writers that I'm looking at, and they are kind of from across the the African continent. I'm I'm looking at um, uh, Senegalese writer Ousmane Semben and his uh, novel "God's Bits of Wood," uh, one of the the most um, talked about um, literary pieces that that he um, he wrote, um, and he um, published that. Um, pretty much at the, around the time of, of um, Senegal's independence, but um, he was writing it. In the, uh, the Senegal gained its independence in 1960, um, but he was writing it in the in the 19 uh, late 1950s when there weren't so many models of uh, of African countries that had uh, successfully decolonized. It was just Ghana in in 57. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, there was a lot of optimism at the, at the time. And in, in this n- novel, which is not about um, revolution, but about a strike, um, an, an actual strike of um, uh, railroad um, workers, and but in which um, he... Mm, uh, manages to, to pack, uh, to wrap up an allegory of, uh, of, of decolonization. And I was quite interested in how um, uh, Sam Ben, who had uh, worked in, as a trade unionist um, in Marseille and um, also um, in Paris, um, he, um, he was also able to, to see what are the forces at work in such a situation of strike and 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 revolution who uh, what are the kind of like cautionary tales about what can what can happen and also one of the most moving things about that the novel is the the role of of women that he um, places um the march of women um to to dakar to to demand um, changes from, from the colonial French colonial regime um, as being one of the most important things that can bring about social transformation. Um, so, so this is this is one of the earlier conceptualizations of um, of revolution and 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 transformation. And then um, I look at a um, later uh, m- novel, which I already mentioned, that is Cerrote's To Every Birth It's Blood, published in 1981. And I'm interested in how Cerrote himself moved from um, the influence of a Fanonist, uh, Black consciousness perspective on. Um, and the anti-apartheid struggle and, and revolution to a Marxist-Leninist um, approach because of his involvement with the um, African National Congress. And, um, of course, the African National Congress was working in tandem with the South African Communist Party. Um, they were very much influenced by, um, by Moscow and the support of, uh, of the Soviet, um, um, Soviet Union. Um, so that, that also means that there's a transformation of how the, the writer sees the possibility of, uh, of revolution, um, happening. It has to, to happen with the role of the party as a kind of vanguard of the, um, of the people. And, and finally, um, and this is also, in fact, one of the, the parts of the, the book that I, I feel most, um, happy about, um, um. I have an analysis of, of the novel, um, The Beautiful Ones Are Not Yet Born by um, Aikwe Arma. Mm-hmm. And which is um, uh, was published in 1968, but it's set just on the eve of um, the coup that um, removed uh, Kwame Nkrumah from from power um, in in Ghana, and it deals with the disenchantment of uh, what the post independence period uh, period brought. And a lot of scholars have paid attention to this novel as um, having to do with. the... Um, Disenchantment of decolonization from from the West, the the limitations of uh, of decolonization, how much can be um, can be achieved, that the kind of corruption that is still rampant in uh, in the new society, the the continued dependence on the on the West, but uh, what I think is really important to think is that the fact that Kwame Nkrumah had embraced um, African socialism, and although. He was claiming that Ghana was was non-aligned. There were clear relations with, with uh, the Eastern Bloc um, countries. Um, unfortunately, um, a, a lot of uh, those relations did not lead to economic success in in Ghana, um, and so the pessimism that is reflected in that novel is not just of the the limitations of decolonization from the west but also a, a pessimism uh, that um, that has to do with the failure of the African socialist model or one African socialist um, model um and that that's that's something that i'm I'm very much um, interested in because it it places the novel in the in the Cold War structure of um, uh, of, of thought, um, quite quite clearly. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I just yeah. uh, wanted to say that. Sure. Yeah. In these three novels, I'm I'm interested in um, what I call affective temporal um, structures um, to uh, to to think about how writers conceptualize on a, on a smaller scale. Um, how the future can be envisioned and what are the, the con- constraints uh, that have to do with the class that they the, 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 come from, the political uh, organizations to which they might belong or not, um, or the philosophical influences that they are uh, under and how all these factors um, add up in order to... Um, uh, and, and then then they are reflected in their perspective about uh, the future and possible futures
0: absolutely yeah and you know I, I have to say that i i re i read twice the analysis of, of that particular piece because i really found it very uh very very beautiful in itself but also um such a a great condensation of all of these these layers right that you you mentioned throughout the chapters of you know potential futures but also right the idea of revolution the idea of the model right whether it's you know the the a type of socialism where it's a type of um you know interiority or you know all, all of these kind of coming together there so you know, I, I highly recommend the book, but also chapter three. It's so hot. And, you know, another thing that um, I found, uh, it was a little bit of an aha moment, not, you know, gr- too much, but, you know, it kind of spoke to, to my my younger self when, you know, I saw chapter four, the hot cold war, uh, rethinking the global conflict through Southern Africa, you know, in, in, um, in Romanian history books uh, from, you know, 20 years ago, The Cold War was described as always being cold. It was just the moment with, you know, the 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 missile crisis that it almost became hot, right? Right. Right. Yeah. But like, otherwise it was fine. <laughs> so, exactly. you know, um, and I, I, was very, very happy when, when I saw the title of your chapter, because I thought, yes, of course it, it was hot, right. It wasn't just, you know, uh, cold all the time. Uh, and of course these are very, um, you know, general terms that I'm using here, but, you know, I just wanted to, to add that uh, little anecdote to, um, you know, make the transition to, to chapter four, but also to say that, you know, this chapter uh, uh, engages with one of Cold War's hot spots, namely Angola, and examines the strength and limits of, of specific genres in representing such a conflict. And, um, you know, I, I just wanted to hear more about the authors in this chapter and how they contextualize the global conflict at hand as, you know, coming from, from this the, uh, spot of
1: actual conflict. Right. Um, so, um, one of the things that I've I've tried to do in in that chapter is to actually um, think across to um, literary traditions that are usually studied separately, namely the the, um, the Anglophone tradition in in South Africa and the um, uh, uh, the uh, Portuguese language um, tradition, the Lusophone tradition in in Angola, yeah. uh, and because of the the language differences, right, that, that that's one of the reasons why they are kind of like compartmentalized, uh, and I think that that's quite problematic because we can't really understand the conflict in in um, uh, in Angola without. Having this kind of regional um, understanding. Um, and, and speaking of, uh, of, and global understanding, and speaking of, of that, that, that's another, um, as you pointed out, right, that, uh, that, that's another thing that um, uh, I'm pushing back against this idea that the war in Angola was a civil war um, between the, the Marxist um, MPLA government and the uh, Western oriented uh, UNITA. Forces, um, it, it actually uh, had regional involvement because South Africa intervened in favor of uh, of UNITA, supporting it with raids over over the over over the border from from Namibia, which was uh, at the time under under South African. Um, Control um, as uh, Southwest um, Africa, mm-hmm. and um, also the um, African National Congress and other liberation movements from the area um, participated on the side of the uh, of the MPLA. But also there was um, global um, uh, intervention as well in the in the conflict because. Um, Cuban forces participated in in such large numbers. Um, They are actually uh, the striking numbers considering the size of of Cuba um, and and its ability to to intervene in in conflicts. And um, and both direct and indirect support um, from the Soviet Union in support of the MPLA um, government, mostly with um technical and 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 political support and also from the the CIA um money and and weapons um, and other forms of support for uh for the UNITA um, forces um so we cannot understand that that um conflict without thinking uh, of it as a hot spot of the um, uh, of the cold war as you have um as you have uh, Pointed out, um, and I, I look at the diversity of texts um, scattered across several decades as the the conflict um, started to take um, um, take shape, and some of the writers are. Um, Former South African combatants who were forced to um, to take place uh, to take part in the in the conflict because of conscription in in South Africa. So we have mm-hmm. um, someone like um, Anthony Ackerman um, who wrote the play somewhere on the on the border um, from such a perspective of of, uh, of a former um, conscript. Then we have novel novelists like Nadine Gordimer who was of course not not involved in the. Um, in the war um, itself, but nonetheless, a novel that seems to be about a completely different thing that is relations between um, former servants and, um, a- and their masters in July's people actually speaks about the kind of subconscious of the of the war. Um, that was present in South African mines and not only just um, uh, the, the soldiers who were being sent over the border um, into into Angola. Um, and um, uh, then, you know, uh, an Angolan writer like um, uh, like Pepetella who wrote one of the most studied novels of the of, um uh, the era of decolonization, Mayombe, which is actually set during the the war against and the, the guerrilla war against um, Portugal, so against um, colonial forces, but actually it's very much of a cold war uh, novel in, in its concerns about ideology and the role of the party and cadres and how they they are supposed to interact with the with the population. And its, uh, it's counterpart uh, by Susa Jamba, um, the novel Patriots, um, w- which um, was written from a pro-Unita perspective. So we have the two parts, and they, they seem to agree about the, the fact that um, there's a lot of um, uh, ideological battle between uh, Western and pro-Soviet um, forces. And also more recent um, texts by South African and um, a- and Angolan writers um, such as uh, Nick Mlongo, uh, Way Back Home, and Onjaki, um, um, Rema 19 and The Soviet Secret, which look from um, uh, backwards, from, from a contemporary perspective at, at the conflict and um, it's It's quite interesting to see how they are turning towards forms of the fantastic or magical realism in order to be able to to grasp the complexity of that um, uh, of that conflict. So these are some of the the things that I wrestled with in in that chapter it's fascinating and um you know the
0: the i wouldn't say well you know from the 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 reader's perspective i wouldn't say it was a wrestle it was more like you know very elegant writing that came out but Thank you. um absolutely it's uh it and it is fascinating to see how how these um, these were contextualized right the global conflict as you know um they they went through um iterations of it on on the ground um and you know that that brings us to to the conclusion from postcolonial to world literature study is the continued relevance of the cold war and here uh, we see that uh, and we learn about the importance of a cold war lens for a more intricate understanding of postcolonial literature and here I would like to invite you to expand a bit on, um, uh, on, on this particularly and also emphasize the role African intellectuals had in the development of cultural theory and world literature.
1: Yeah, um, uh, definitely. So, uh, one of the things that I'm also thinking about right uh, right now is um, how postcolonial studies as a paradigm for for the study of uh, of African literature and other literatures from the global south has started to. To disappear from um, from from the foreground right. um, in the in the new millennium, and uh, concurrently, we also saw the rise of the the world literature um, paradigm. Right, it is a quite a productive um, um, enterprise right now. People are writing lots of books on on uh, world literature, yeah. And um, so, so for me, one of the concerns is to to what extent the Cold War has um helped um, propel um a certain form of, of post-colonial um, studies as i as I mentioned um, earlier a uh, pretty deep politicized um, form of post-colonial studies influenced by post-structuralism which became anthologized in the um, and institutionalized in the uh, in the 1990s so right at the end of the uh, of the cold war um, and and that depoliticized version had a lot to do with the hesitations of of scholars of theorists um to to be seen as as being partisan um to be too political which was was being seen as as problematic during the um during the cold war um and that also means, of course, that as I mentioned earlier, we need to retrieve the the influence of scholars and and writers who were not afraid to take a much more political perspective in um, in their approach to to decolonization um, and to um, place their voices um, squarely at the at the, the center of uh, a history of of postcolonial. Um, studies, and I'm thinking, of course, uh, you know of the um, the efforts of Ngugi um, wa Thiongo, um, and um, the, the the book that I mentioned several times um, by now, um, decolonizing the mind. Also, his collection of essays, moving the center. Um, but but um, so so these are very important, you know, to to think about postcolonial studies. Um, I mentioned uh, earlier Luis Nkosi and his collections of essays. Alex Laguma, um, definitely a very important um, person whose uh, mm, smaller works have um, have now been um, edited and, and put together, especially um, a conference ephemera um, put together by uh, Chris Lee um, and, um, and edited... Um, and i think that a collection of, of those is coming out um, this um, this year um so that that's going to help us to to think about how these african writers contributed to um to debates about topics that are central to our concerns with with post-colonial studies. And in the same way, we can think about the influence of of African writers and and, and scholars to um, conceptualizing world literature and thinking beyond some kind of um, very um, cheerful, optimistic view of world literature as being this um, happy collection of, of literatures and uh, representation of all the voices uh, of of the of the world, and what are the challenges of of, uh, of that representation? Right, because, because of course the the contributions to to world literature happens through certain um, institutional channels. And we have to to think of the relationship between forms of sponsorship and, um, a, and the ability to reach out an international public and and uh, and visibility. And um, again, we can look at um, uh, at African writers and what they had to say about um, these mechanisms of uh, of visibility, and. The corrective ways in which we can understand um, uh, world literature in, in more complex terms, and uh, I want to recommend warmly to to everyone Guugui uh, book um, Global um, which um, aims to to think um, in dialectical terms, but with the globe in mind, so that each um center on on the uh, each point on the globe um can be a center from from which we can think about world literature um and its relations um and the relations between writers
0: yeah and you know if i if i may i would add that that's a very important book to think about one's own right position in terms of you know analysis of, of cultural production cultural production itself and you know if we are to to think of the the you know global uh, brain drain whether you know it's towards the west or you know going towards east or you know nowadays or you know just just thinking about these um, these issues I think it's a very important book that at least for me was was um, quite quite foundational in graduate yeah, <laughs> and, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, and it's coming out of the um, uh, the poor theory uh, collective um, um, that um, at UC Irvine that um, um, of which Ngugi was um, was part.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, yeah, I, I would I would follow you in, in recommending the, the the book, and um, you know I also take the the opportunity to ask whether you know there's something you, you wanted to to add in addition to what we already uh, covered here
1: oh well um uh i i think that you know what i would add is um to, to say that you know a, a book cannot be written uh you know in in solitude so yeah. what i would really add are my thanks my my thanks to to my parents to 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 my partner to my family to friends um to my intellectual interlocutors uh, and you know i i'm so grateful for uh, the people who invited me to to give talks um, at uh, various universities from NYU to Penn State, where I, I met you yeah. um, <laughs> yeah. uh, to to Harvard, to Yale, um, University of Bitwatersrand in South Africa, and um, uh, University of Stellenbosch, and um, University of Nairobi, um also to my colleagues at um, at McGill. Um, and also, I want to mention uh, quickly two people who were writing their books um, at the same time as I was writing mine. And uh, I want to warmly recommend their, their books. Uh, that's uh, Bhakti Sringapura's um, Cold War Assemblages and um, Rossin Jagalov, um, From Internationalism to, to Postcolonialism, which I think that are really um, important contributions to um thinking about the cold war and um, african literature or other literatures from from the uh from the global south
0: absolutely and you know if they're not on a new books network yet you know i i hope to to see interviews very soon with them um
1: there and um exactly. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and let me add that you know I'm I'm very grateful of course to uh to my um editor um Elizabeth Old, at uh, Duke uh, University Press and to the people who have endorsed the um the book um especially to um Jean Komarov at at Harvard and and to Ngugi wa uh, yeah
0: absolutely and I think it's it's actually a very important um a thing to to do that maybe sometimes we're not, um, you know, uh, propelled to, to do enough uh, to, to thank our, you know, transnational uh, villages that, you know, help us, right? It takes a village yeah. to, to exactly. write a book. <laughs> um, and, um, yeah, I think it's it's a very important uh, thing to do. And, um, you know, I totally Oh. endorse that and i'm happy you, you did it so you know and you know speaking of that as as a last question because we've we've taken a lot of your time i was wondering you know uh how and w- what is the next project and you know how is the 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 support network
1: right uh involved involved in it um so what what are the next projects um, or the current well, projects? Yeah. there there are several things on uh, uh that are <laughs> kind of like in the process uh, of shaping up right now <laughs> Um, one of them is a, a shorter book, an intellectual biography of Fungugi Bathiongo, and I, I feel really happy to Great. be working on this. Great. Um, yes. But I'm also uh, working with um, several research um, groups, um, for instance, exploring um, world literature. Um, I'm dipping my my toes into the uh, digital humanities uh, approaches to see what uh, can come out out of uh, um, out of that, great. Uh, and I have a wonderful group uh, based both at McGill and with with collaborators from um, from other uh, universities in this respect. Mm-hmm. And also uh, a project um, on global socialisms. Um, and uh, I, I'm not yet sure how these two are going to intersect in uh, kind of longer uh, longer books, but they're they hopefully going in, in that direction. That sounds great. And, um, you know, I, I really hope
0: to 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 see them you know flourish and you know to to invite you and your your colleagues back to new books network in the future thank you, thank you so
1: much thank thanks a lot so for for
0: for this absolutely so thank you very much and i really look forward to to reading more uh that will come out i'm sure in in the next uh next few years thank you so much victoria thank you